Let's place ourselves as members of the crowd listening to Jesus speak. I realized in this passage, the portion I chose didn't actually specify that Jesus was the he they were talking about, so just in case case that was unclear, uh, they told Jesus about these things. Uh, So we, the listeners, the members of the crowd, came from our normal lives, our daily labor, because we've heard the news of the day. We've heard that this man, Jesus, is noteworthy, that this traveling preacher is someone who just might be worth listening to, or at the very least, it is worth going because other people are listening to him, whether we think he deserves the attention or not. Those of us in the crowd likely keep up with the news. We pride ourselves on staying informed. So when someone in the crowd tells Jesus about two recent events, it might not be news to us at all. We've probably already heard. We already have our opinions about the tower collapse in Siloam and about Pilate's uh, attack on a certain group of Galileans. Hearing these incidents mentioned, though, might take us back to our reactions when we first heard. Someone tells us in hushed tones, a tower collapsed, no warning. It killed 18 people. They tried to dig out survivors, but but there weren't any. We experienced shock and disbelief, then horror, sadness, sorrow. Lastly, we're left with fear, fear that it could happen to us too. And later that same day, we hear more ill tidings. Pilate is at it again. He murdered a group of Galileans, but but that's not even all of it. They were making sacrifices when he ordered them killed. He mixed their blood with with the animal's blood. Yeah, he really did. And our eyes widen as tears spring up. What an awful story that this hated occupier should take not only our people's lives, but trample on their very beliefs. Our hands shake, our hearts race, and our throats constrict with anger, with outrage, and with fear. Yet even as we listeners experience these emotions, we begin to push them away. We begin to search for a way out of the fear. Surely this couldn't happen to me. Surely there was something about the people that died in this horrible way that meant that they perhaps somehow deserved it, or at least that they didn't take adequate precautions. It couldn't happen to me because I'm a worthy person. I'm respectful to Roman soldiers in the streets. I keep my head down. I don't make eye contact. Uh, Also, I'm a good person of faith. I don't sin, or at least not much. Surely I'll be safe from falling towers, from Roman authorities. And thus we push the fear away, telling ourselves that we are different than those that died. We calm ourselves by denying our similarities with those that were harmed. Yet what about when there's no person to behave appropriately in front of in order to be safe? Instead, it's an act of random harm, a tower falling. In that case, the people are thinking of God as the one they have to act right in front of in order to stay safe. Frankly, these thoughts are also something like the victim blaming that people engage in around sexual assault. If I dress right, if I walk right, if I'm smart and careful, I'll be okay, I'll be safe. And the corollary to that thought pattern as that it is someone's fault if they are targeted. It's a rationalization, a way of putting the fear of our own vulnerability somewhere else, 
a way of believing that we have earned our safety and good fortune. When Jesus speaks, it is as though he was listening to our thoughts. Do you really think that because these Galileans suffered like this, they were worse sinners than all others? No, I tell you. And then again, to drive the point home, the tower victims, were they worse offenders than the others? No, absolutely not. Now, Jesus' no is followed up by a statement to repent or perish, and I will return to the second part of his statement later. For now, I want to stay a little longer with this idea that Jesus disputed, that the bad that befalls someone is a sign of sin or a sign of God's disfavor. And what I want to speak more to is the thought that then can easily accompany that mistaken equation of bad luck equals God's disapproval, that the good that befalls someone, safety or perhaps prosperity and success, is a sign of God's favor, a reward for worthiness. Now, to be clear, I'm not arguing against feeling gratitude to God for the good in our lives. Cultivating a spirit of gratitude is important. Prayers of petition for safety on a trip, prayers of thanksgiving when you make it home another day, all of these serve to connect us to God, remind us of God's presence day in, day out. What I do believe is problematic is seeing the good things that happen to us as something that we uniquely deserve, something that we earned and therefore God granted especially for those among us who have privilege due to race or ethnicity. This is a particularly problematic and dangerous thought pattern. America's history is laced with the doctrine of discovery, a religiously and politically motivated belief that white Europeans and their American descendants were divinely given the right to take and tame the land of the new world, in the process dehumanizing and dispossessing the indigenous populations. The white settlers at that time and the national myths that have shaped our country saw the acquisition of land as a divine blessing, rewards for Christian faith and right living. And the flip side of that narrative would be the racist idea that the indigenous people were somehow undeserving of the land, that they were in some way to blame for the loss of their lives and homes. There was a recent editorial on the doctrine of discovery by Paul Schrag in the Mennonite World Review. I, uh, I meant to bring that copy and I didn't. So you can ask me later to bring it again, and I can loan it to you. Um, Schrag writes that the doctrine of discovery has gone by many names, manifest destiny, white supremacy, and American exceptionalism. Beyond being an American story, it is an American Mennonite story. Mennonites came to the New World from Europe fleeing persecution in some cases, yes, but they did not then side with the oppressed. They instead benefited from the dispossession of Native Americans by beginning to farm lands that had shortly before been someone's else. Uh, if this troubled our spiritual ancestors, they experienced fear that what had been done to them, to others, could be done to them. Perhaps they silenced that feeling in a way that Jesus' listeners did, by saying that what had happened was somehow deserved by those who died and that the survivors deserved their good fortune. So what might Jesus have said when hearing the story of tribes forced from their homes, killed by military might? Were these worse sinners than others? Were they worse offenders? No, and no. Shrog, in his editorial, writes, we can name our ancestors' faults, while admitting that their actions must have seemed culturally and religiously appropriate at the time. But now we must learn from their mistakes and repent of our own sins. One of our responsibilities now 
is, the time, is to confess the times when peaceful, though we might be personally, we too have silently fallen in line with the forces of violence, racism, and greed. And what now to make of Jesus' statement, repeated twice in answer to whether those who suffered were worse than others? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish as they did. This is one I'm frankly not very sure about. I mean, the statement, unless you repent, you will perish as they did, doesn't entirely make um, logical sense if we take perishing literally as dying. All of Jesus' listeners to that statement did at some point die, whether they repented or not. All members of humanity, except a couple in the Bible, uh, have at some point died, and so will we. So the urge to repent isn't telling us that we can avoid death. So how did they perish? Some by chance, some by the hand of state terrorism, but all being blamed by listeners for their misfortune. Is perhaps this very blame part of what we, the listeners, are being asked to repent for? Repenting for blaming, repenting for not seeing the humanity of those who suffer, repenting for not seeing others as equally worthy of respect and love as our own selves. What to do with the legacy of many of our ancestors who ignored those who suffered and considered themselves more righteous? What to do with times we may do this ourselves? How to, do we avoid a trap of fear and instead respond to the humanity in those who suffer? A story of two women shared in the Mennonite World Review, uh, written up by Tim Huber, gave me uh, one ray of hope about one way this can look. I don't have easy answers to the questions I just asked, but, but I wanted to share one, one story of hope with it. The Kanza people, or no, also known as the Ka Nation, lived in part of what is now Kansas until broken treaties and American military action forced them to leave their ancestral homes and relocate to Oklahoma in 1873. European-American immigrants then homesteaded the land, meaning that they were given it by the government in exchange for tilling it. For the immigrants, I can only imagine that it felt providential, that God's favor had shown on them by giving them their new home. If they thought of the Native Americans who had lived there at all, Perhaps it was with a shudder of fear that they too could someday lose their land, lose their lives. Instead, better not to think of it. We are not like them. We deserve our fortune in a way that they deserved theirs. And a temptation, even you know, generations later, is to continue to interpret stories of how our ancestors received land as a sign of God's blessing, and while not explicitly saying that it was a sign of God's disfavor on those dispossessed, that lurks in the background. This forcible transfer of resources and wealth happened long ago, but the consequences didn't just end in the 1800s. In one single example, out of many, a German Lutheran immigrant homesteaded successfully uh, six years after uh, the Kaw Nation was forcibly relocated. His descendants kept the land and tilled it and passed it on to their children. They lived on it, tilled it, raised their children, passed it on and so on. Until we come to Florence Schlonegger, the great-great-granddaughter of that very settler, who grew up on that very same land, which were the former hunting grounds of the Kanza people. She's now an older adult, a retired Mennonite pastor. Through her life and ministry, she learned more about the history of how America treated uh, Native Americans, 
and recognized the complicity of her own family's story. She was later introduced to a woman named Pauline Sharp, a Kanza tribe member, a descendant of those whose ancestral land had become Ms. Schlonegger's family farm. The two women grew to know each other, sharing stories, hugs, and tears. Schlonegger spoke of their entwined history, stating that when you let yourself really experience it, you realize how awful it is. Pauline's great-grandparents died of starvation, while mine were accumulating all this land. And what do you do with that? And in spite, her answer to it, inspired by what she knew of the Kanza and her desire to stand against oppression, was that when the land that she grew up on was sold, she donated a portion, her portion of it, $10,000, to the Kanza Heritage Society. And so the descendants of the people that were forced from that land um, have some small, like a park, there, uh, that this money will now hope help to maintain, help to provide a spiritual home place for a group of people that were dispossessed. And this act inspired others, including her youngest brother, to do the same. And so that, that seed gift is growing. She responded to historic harm through present-day action, avoiding the temptation to turn away and enjoy her own good fortune. May we also choose not to retreat in fear not to blame the victims who we see harmed, not to blame ourselves when we are harmed, but neither to, to revel in our own good fortune. May we all seek for places where we can repent, where we can make amends, and through it all, may we seek God's presence and guidance in the hardest of situations.